Jenkins, Spencer German with you. Overtime with Jonathan Peterlin. Here till midnight as we're uh, we're kind of waiting for this storm to roll in. I know J- Jax is like extra nervous. You didn't you didn't know it was going to start tonight? You thought it was just like a tomorrow morning thing? Yeah, I thought it was starting tomorrow. I thought we were safe tonight. Where do you live again? Macedonia. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because we're going the same direction in yeah. the same area. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we'll, we'll be in this together. If you see me in a ditch, stop off and help me out, please. <laughs> oh, man. Now, well, here's the thing. I don't know that it's supposed to get, like, really, really bad in the first hour. So, like, we might be okay leaving the station, driving home tonight around midnight. But it's just, like, overnight into the morning and then during drive time, it could get bad. So, hopefully we avoid the the worst of it and we're okay. But if you're hunkering down, tuning in, we appreciate it. We're going to get to Cavs here momentarily because... Chris Fedor of Cleveland.com, who was at the game last night covering the team as always, he had a piece last night about how the vibes around the locker room, the way guys are talking, the way they're playing, feels like a team that really could be a contender again. Are we getting ahead of ourselves, or are you starting to feel those same vibes from the outside looking in as fans as we start to sort of focus more on the Cavs and more on basketball season, and they start to get healthy. 216-474-2192. We'll talk about that as well with Greg Swartz, Bleacher Report, who joins us at 820. We also have a special guest. I'll reveal who it is later in this hour. A former Browns assistant coach will join us at 10 p.m. In the meantime, though, I'm going to squeeze in a couple more calls here on this Browns topic and the idea that Kevin Stefanski is probably going to keep calling the plays but that we got some interesting insight from Albert Breer on who made this decision and where it's kind of coming from and why that gives us insight into really how everybody's being graded, specifically on the offensive side of the ball, Stefanski included. It's all about Deshaun. And if they don't get more out of him this year, assuming Kevin Stefanski's still calling the plays, like he might get that, that role forcibly removed from him going the next year if it doesn't work out. And then his his head might be on the chopping block after that going into year four of Deshaun Watson if they're still not seeing the results. It's all very interesting. But but that is, like, this organization is doing everything it can to not be proven wrong on the Deshaun deal. We're going to find out really quickly going into 2024 if it's going to work out. Gary and Maple Heights, you're up next. What's up, Gary? Spencer, thank you for taking my call. No doubt. And I'm a, I'm putting you in my boys' club, man, because you know you 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 kind of crazy, man, but you make sense. <laughs> I, I love talking to people like you. You know when I wait, call wait, I wanna, when why I why am I crazy? What what am I? Well, I I'm curious what your perspective uh, from your perspective why am I, why I'm crazy? Because you you speak your truth, you speak your mind, and you and if it's goofy, silly, whatever, it's just you, <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and it's truthful. I can't be so, anything but myself, Gary. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's that's it, man. But look, you know, I don't know why we we're really doing this. Um, Kevin Stefanski, whether he's making a call to fire the guys, not making a call. Um, long as they're not doing change for change's sake, it makes no difference. Those guys weren't important. We weren't getting – I don't even think I heard something mentionable one time on the radio since he's been in Cleveland. Well, Gary, real quick, I don't want to say they're not important at all because I do think – and I brought this up last night. Like, the one thing that worried me about these changes is we finally feel like the Browns have an identity and a culture, right? 
And right. so I don't want to see that disrupted by you move on from a coach that maybe was really important to the locker room dynamic. And it sounds like Stump Mitchell's a guy who is very highly respected. I knew that from my time covering the Bills at one point. Like, he was with the Bills at that time, and everybody loved him, and everybody seemed to love him here in Cleveland. And so you don't want to see that disrupted because this game, this sport is ultimately about relationships. But if you're not worried, if at the end of the day, like, do I think this disrupts that entirely and that everything's just going to go off the rails because of these moves? No, but I I, I can't just, I'm not, I'm not going to disregard the fact that these guys might have meant something to somebody in that locker room. You know what I mean? Right. So, okay, you don't discount it, and I get that because there's a human factor involved in it. But my thing is, if they get better because of the changes they made, then yeah. that's where we all not even going to make no bones about what happened. So I, I'm just excited that the coach didn't get fired. We're starting <laughs> over. Yeah, we're, we're, we're actually doing something, and let's see where it goes because everybody's worried about Deshaun. But I think the, the plan might be a little bit bigger than what we're all thinking. That's all. I like the call. I appreciate you, Gary. Good stuff as always, my man. Thank you. All right. And, yeah, big picture, that's what this move feels like. And not to say those guys weren't insignificant, but I'm trusting that they're making these decisions for a reason, and it's with that big picture in mind. And part of the big picture is that Deshaun has to succeed moving forward in the next year and beyond. Uh, Let's do one more call on this before we get to this Cavs topic here. Luke in North Royalton. What's up, Luke? Spence, how you doing, man? Good, man. What's going on? I I called you yesterday. Bruh, you you can't really believe that uh, Kevin Stefanski made this decision, do you? So I felt like last night it might have been more him because I think he, based off of last year, he makes the calls on defensive coordinator, special teams coordinator, and so I kind of felt like the the organization at this point is enabling him and saying, listen, we trust you. You got us back to the playoffs. You did it this way. It was hard. Four different quarterbacks, yada, yada, yada. We all know the story. And so I, I felt like that yesterday, but hearing Albert Breer's comments today, and we always see the organization and every, you know, whether it's the fans, Gary, whoever, talk about how it's a collaborative effort. It does feel more like somebody got in his ear and said, hey, we need to make some changes here. What are you going to do about it? And then he had to kind of be the the bearer of bad news, if you will, and deliver that. So I I feel like now more so it probably did come from the powers that be, but the 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 idea behind it is still we want to get the most out of Deshaun. Right, right. So I don't know I don't know how long you've been with at the station, but and I don't know if you remember if you're around, but in 2016, um, when uh, they got rid of. Um, uh, uh, I think it was Penn. Penn was the coach before Hugh Jackson, right? Yeah, 2016 would have been okay. the uh, the Owen 16 yeah. year. Uh, okay, so Paul D. Podesta interviewed Sean McDermott and um, uh, Kevin Stefanski the first time. He wanted he wanted um, Sean McDermott, but Sean McDermott took Buffalo yeah. position. Yeah. Okay, so Haslam basically called that one and hired Hugh Jackson because Hugh Jackson, you know, sold him uh, on yeah. himself and this and that. And that's why I think they waited so long to fire Hugh because I think, like, the Haslam's just wanted to be right, right about it. Right, exactly. So then when Hugh Jackson didn't work out, 
Okay, and then they got rid of Freddie Kitchens and, you know, that whole situation. The second time around, Haslam took Paul D. Podesta's word as gospel. Kevin Stefanski, Paul D. Uh, Kevin Stefanski was Paul D. Podesta's man. Basically, Kevin Stefanski is a uh, puppet for D. Mm. Podesta. What is Zimbify? Jimmy Haslam. Zimbify is an immune globulin or so, IG therapy. IG is a scientific because term for antibodies that I mean, fight germs and prevent Alfred infection. Had nothing to do with the offense. So, this Luke, you 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 think you think Stefanski has almost like zero power? I, I I he has zero power, and I think Andrew Barry. But has do you think he's drawing power. up the plays? Because you just said AVP doesn't have anything to do with the offense. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, Kevin Stefanski is drawing up the plays. Okay, so it's 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 his offense. So he might take some maybe some input on um, yeah. uh, some of the plays, but everything is, is is drawn up by Kevin Stefanski. So basically, I feel that Alex Van Pelt got the short end of the stick. So because he really didn't have any input, and you have to remember, the one time that he called the plays was the 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 wild card game. Yeah, the playoffs they won the playoff game. Yeah. Yeah, he won the playoff game. So, come, come on. I mean, the writing's on the wall. Yeah. Now, granted, different quarterback, different situation, but you're right. It was the one time they won a playoff game. Luke, I appreciate your call, man. Thanks for calling in again. All right, thank you. Yep, no problem. Yeah, I, listen, the power structure's interesting. That's the second time I've heard I don't know if Luke called the show earlier and said the same thing. Somebody else mentioned that um, Stefanski was a Paul D. Podesta hire, and so he's the puppet for him. And that might be how it's set up. That could be the power structure. And I'm completely off base here. And Kevin Stefanski just does what he's told. Um, I'd like to think he has some leeway being a winning coach now that's taken this team to the playoffs twice. But maybe Paul D. Podesta is the guy that everyone confides in because they think he's the guy that built this thing. Bringing in Stefanski and whatnot. Either way, I think we understand what is in play here. And why these decisions were made. And I still wholeheartedly believe that Kevin Stefanski is going to be the play caller next year. What what ultimately interests me about today and the comments from Breer and others was just that this pointed to big picture. What 2024 and beyond is all about. Everybody's job, Stefanski, Barry, the organization, top to bottom, everybody's job pretty much changes on what happens with Deshaun Watson from here. And so if that means getting some other voices in there that maybe can work with the quarterback of his style, put him in the West Coast offense and do some things like Stefanski does in his system, but also some things that are catered to him, then that's what you're going to do. Because they have to look right about this. It's it's Hugh Jackson all over again. They wanted to be right about Hugh Jackson. Now they got to be right about Deshaun Watson. 216-474-992 if you want to get back into that conversation at some point. We also will get to... This idea that there could be a world where Deshaun Watson and Joe Flacco exist in the same quarterback room. Is it possible that that could work? I'll get my thoughts on it. We'll hear some thoughts from Brian Billick on it as well. But right now, guys, as you get ready for Greg Swartz, a Bleacher Report coming your way at 820 in about seven minutes. Chris Fedor Cleveland.com was writing last night. The vibe out of the locker room is that this team... Feels like a contender again. And now, contender can mean a lot of different things. It can mean a playoff contender. It can mean a championship contender. I don't think anybody, when the season started, 
felt like the the Cavs were a bona fide for sure championship contender, but I think they felt like they could make some noise in the East, maybe make a run that would surprise some people. Injuries derailed that. They've gotten back on track of late with still two key players in Garland and Mobley out. I don't know if I'm back on board to the point of saying making bold predictions about this team and saying, here, Eastern Conference Finals, here we come, or anything like that. It feels good to win games, but it's six games against the Wizards, the Bulls, uh, the, the Bucks without Giannis. There is some context there. And the Cavs, even without their two, two of their star players, they're still a good team because they got Donovan Mitchell, who's proving, by the way, that he can kind of carry a team on his own. But... I'm at least feeling good about the way this team is trending. And you reinsert a guy like Garland here in a couple weeks. You reinsert a guy like Moby in the month after that. And I'm open to the idea that this season isn't just going to end up being a wasted one where we're asking ourselves, what do we do with Donovan Mitchell this offseason because it didn't work out this year. And instead it feels like, okay, something viable could be here if they reinsert these guys and they fit and it works and the system can kind of keep moving the way it is and the the rhythm doesn't get messed up and they're winning games and it's not the Portland Trailblazers game from December, but more of what we're seeing right now and they're beating good teams at full strength, then yeah, I'll be convinced of that. But I need to give it more time and we need to see how it looks when those two guys get back. That is something we will ask Greg Swartz of Bleach Report when we get back on Overtime with Jonathan Peterlin. Spencer Driven with you till midnight here on The Fan. Six straight wins for the Cavs. George Niang dropping 33 last night. Career high for him. Uh, You got... Everybody just seems to be playing great basketball right now. Everyone's eating it up. A lot of three balls. And there's rumors that they can make some trades at the deadline to get even better. But are you are you buying into the idea that they are now contenders again? And, and whatever your definition, I guess, of contender is. Because it could be a championship contender. It could just be playoff contender. I think the latter is certainly still true. And the fact that they've stayed afloat certainly speaks to the team's resilience. We, we like throwing that word around a lot in Cleveland right now, especially after the Brown season that they had. Um, but they're they're sticking with it. They're fourth in the East and climbing, and reinforcements are on the horizon. To break it all down, talk about how those reinforcements could re, get reinserted and fit back into the starting lineup, we welcome on in from Bleacher Report, NBA writer Greg Swartz, our friend of the show. Greg How's it going tonight, my man? Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on tonight. Um, first of all, I, I I guess I'll start with what I kind of was teasing coming in here, which is this idea that listen, Cavs won six in a row. They've kept this. They, they've kept the train on the tracks despite these two massive injuries that felt like it was almost a doomsday scenario a little over a month ago in December. And it's looking like they're going to kind of emerge from this thing, still very much in the mix, still very much in the playoff picture. Um, what does this look like, though? Because they're playing really good basketball in terms of the ball movement and pace of play and shooting a lot of threes, as we've seen, whether they're knocking them down or not. Um, and I, I just wonder how flawless it will be or what bumps in the road could emerge as you reinsert Darius Garland and Evan Moby back into this thing over the next couple of weeks and month or so. Yeah, I think with Darius, he's an easy fit back in the system. Um, you're, the, the big difference with the Cavs over the last 14 games or so, for me, has been the amount of three-pointers taken yeah. and made. Um, if you look at the Cavs before 
kind of like that middle of December where we lost Darius and we lost Evan. Um, Evan had missed a couple games before that, and it was officially ruled out. Um, during that time, the Cavs were 25th in the NBA at 11.4 three-pointers made per game, shooting about 34.5%. Uh, that's about where the Charlotte Hornets ranked, uh, about the Toronto Raptors before they made their trades. You're, you're looking at the bottom of the NBA. Um, since that time, the Cavs rank second in the NBA and made threes, only behind the Boston Celtics, which are obviously the best team in the NBA. So to me, that's the biggest difference. Um, so if you're talking about what adjustments are they going to make, well, you put Darius back in. Darius is obviously an excellent three-point shooter. He creates threes for others. He's a great catch-and-shoot guy. He's a great uh, shooter uh, spotting up. Um, no problems there. The issue is Evan. And when you put Evan on the floor, we know the positives that come with Evan, but we also know the negatives. And you're removing a shooter off the court. If you're taking Dean Wade off, if you're taking Isaac Cora off, you're taking a guy who will at least give you spacing. And right now, Evan doesn't give that for you, and he's never provided that for you. So they're going to have to adjust how they play, and the number of three-pointers that they take is inevitably going to have to come down, or else Evan's going to have to start shooting him. And so far, uh, here we are, year three, we have no evidence that that's going to happen. Yeah. So how sustainable, with all that in mind, how sustainable is it that they continue to play this way and do it effectively? Because I, I know it was asked last night of J.B. Bickerstaff, you know, what does this thing look like when those guys get back? Can you keep playing this way? And he obviously is going to sit there and say what he said, which was, yeah, we think we can. We, we know what this thing looks like now. But what is it really going to look like once you start thinking through how Mobley fits into this thing when you do take a shooter off the floor? Yeah, uh, and Mobley, it's not like Mobley is a guy that plays 15 minutes off the bench. I mean, this is a right. starter that's going to give you over 30 minutes a game. So that makes a huge difference. Um, the other thing is, after those guys went down, we started using Sam Merrill more. And yeah. is Sam Merrill still going to be in the rotation? Because here's a guy that makes darn near 50% of his three-pointers, um, is an excellent uh, floor spacer where he, you, you don't have to ask him to shoot. <laughs> I mean, you get him the ball, uh, he's jacking that thing up uh, on a per-minute <laughs> basis more than just about anybody in the league. Uh, he's not afraid to let it fly whether it goes in or not. He's like Swaggy P almost. That, that, that's <laughs> fine, yes. He's, he's the modern-day uh, yeah, Nick Young. So uh, <laughs> I think he needs to stay in the rotation, but it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough because obviously Darius plays 30 minutes a night and Evan has to play 30 minutes a night. Um, somebody's going to get squeezed. Somebody's going to be either eliminated completely or their minutes are going to be cut. And you're looking at Isaac Okoro. You're looking at Sam Merrill. You're looking at some of these guys, Dean Wade. Um, and all these guys are shooters. All these guys space the floor. Um, you know, Okoro, obviously, to a lesser extent. But somebody's going to get squeezed out. And I just don't think it's sustainable to shoot as many threes as they are now once you put Evan back on the court. Greg Swartz, Bleacher Report, joining us on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodge Ram Hotline. So is that going to be the right move then for this team? Like, is the style they're playing with now what they should maybe try to stick with more of? I don't know what that means. Like, does that mean Evan Mobley plays less minutes and you, I mean, I, I, on some level, I'm sure when he comes back, you're going to ease him back in any way. He'll probably be on a minute's restriction. But is is going back to Evan Mobley full speed ahead and running the offense through him and, and some of the things they tried early in the season really the way that they should kind of try to win down the stretch of the season here into the into the spring? Or should they try to do it differently like they're doing right now? Well, offensively, you can't play the same way you were playing before. And a lot of what they're going to do, too, is, uh, you know, Tristan Thompson, who's got more run lately, 
as a backup to Jared Allen. Well, I mean, Evan Mobley is going to be the backup five now. So Tristan Thompson is either going to be, you know, five to ten minutes a game or, or you're not going to see him because he's going to play a lot of backup five because they're going to want to keep four shooters on the floor, you know, whether it's Jared at the center, uh, Evan Mobley at the center, but you're going to want to keep those four shooters out there. Um, because if you just look at, you know, the starting lineup numbers and the starting lineup that they've been using now with Donovan Mitchell, Max Struess, Isaac Coro, Dean Wade, Jared Allen, that lineup, that five-man lineup has almost played as many minutes as their regular starting lineup now, uh, wow. 304 possessions to 294. So there's only 10 possession difference uh, overall. Um, their regular starting five, uh, that offense ranks in the 33rd percentile overall. This new starting five where you've got Donovan Mitchell at point guard, uh, you don't have uh, Evan Mobley, you have uh, four shooters on the floor, that offense ranks in the 85th percentile. They're scoring 16 more points per 100 possessions because of that added floor spacing. And uh, to me, that's remarkable because you just took off an all-star point guard and your offense went up by that much. So I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. Obviously, you've got to play your best guys um, you got to play Evan big minutes, and he's going to help your defense. you got to play Darius big minutes. But at some point, you can't go back to where you were before because that offense just wasn't good enough. Yeah, J.B. Bickerstaff's going to have his work cut out for him. Speaking of J.B. Bickerstaff, do we, I don't know if it's Omen apology, but is there on, on some level how much credit does he deserve for keeping the, the train on the tracks here and keeping this thing together because – Listen, like you lose two of your star players the way this team did, and they already were off to a rough start. Things could have really folded in there, and they've been able to kind of keep it together here. So how much credit do you think he deserves for just kind of keeping this locker room together and finding ways to win, even if it's against inferior opponents like we've seen, I guess, of late with teams like the Wizards and the Bulls and all that? Yeah, I mean, I get that, but I, I, you, you haven't played the strongest opponents, and you just played the Bucks without Giannis, but... It, these are still NBA teams. Like they're not just going to yeah. roll over and die for you. They're not the Detroit Pistons. Like these are still teams with a pulse. <laughs> so you have to at least uh, show a little bit of effort. And it, it would have been very easy, especially when you get that one-two punch. You know, on the same day, finding out that Evan was going to miss a couple months and Darius was going to miss a couple months. Yeah, it would have been really easy to lose that and think, oh, Donovan's going to have to score forty a game for us to win. Um, I'm not just going to give credit to Bickerstaff, I'm going to give credit to Kobe Altman because this was a team mm. that needed a lot of depth, and that's what he addressed this offseason. If you look at last night, um, that was still a good Bucks team. They just got Jay Crowder back. They still have Damian Lillard. Uh, they still have Chris Middleton. They have Brooke Lopez. They, they had a lot of good guys still, and you have George Nian go off for over 30 points uh, coming off the bench. You have Max Struess that even if he's not knocking down shots, He's a distraction. He's a he's, he moves the ball. He's somebody you have to guard. Um, Jared Allen, I feel like you know uh, credit to him, but credit to JB for you know kind of putting him more in a, a playmaker role where he's been outstanding as a passer, and that's not something we've we've seen from him a lot throughout his career. So I let's give credit to JB, but let's give give credit to Kobe because if this team wasn't as deep as it was, uh, this season could have been lost by now. At Greg Swartz, BR on X is where you can find him. He's Greg Swartz, of Bleacher Report. You talk about depth and Kobe Altman's uh, ability to address that in the offseason and really build this roster out this year. Is there a chance to do more of that at the deadline? We saw some names pop up this week. DeAndre Hunter, which seems like a, a bit of an albatross of a contract to take on, but also Royce O'Neal from Brooklyn, who they've been linked to a couple times and obviously has a relationship with Donovan Mitchell. 
how likely is it you think that the the Cavaliers pull off uh, some sort of trade to maybe add more shooting or at least add some more depth on this roster? Yeah, I mean, you're just really limited with what you can trade. And then it's like salary-wise, who do you give up? Because if you bring in – you know, I I have no interest in DeAndre Hunter. Uh, He's making over $20 million a year. He's on a four-year contract. He's just never been – a great NBA player. He's been okay. He's just never been great. And I think he's overpaid. Um, if you want to go get a guy like that, who are you giving up? Because you got to give up a guy, you know, like a Karis LeVert, uh, who you have to max match contract numbers with. And I just don't know that that makes you better. If you do that, um, Royce O'Neal is a little bit more attainable. He makes about nine and a half million. He's on an expiring contract. Uh, he's coming off the bench for the nets. The nets are in this weird position where, they're trying to win, but if, if they lose, that's not good either because their first-round pick is owed to the Houston Rockets. So if they're bad, they can't even take advantage of it. Um, so I, I don't know why they would sell necessarily. I think they would want to do a, a winning piece for a winning piece, um, and I don't know what a framework looks like for them either. So um, it, I, I don't think it's going to be a real active deadline for Cleveland just because you don't have a lot to send out. You've got some second-round picks. Um, Isaac Okoro would probably interest uh, a rebuilding team that needed a, a defensive-minded wing. But, again, I like Isaac, and he did a great job on Damian Lillard last night. So do you really want to give him up? Um, if I'm the Cavs, I, I'm not doing anything that's kind of really shaking up this locker room, and I don't have a lot of options to do that either. So I would widely expect this Cavs roster to stay the same now uh, as it is in, in, in a couple weeks for the trade deadline. Um just because of their, their limited on and trade. Greg Swartz, Bleacher Report, joining us on the North Olmstead Chrysler Jeep Dodger M Hotline. A few more minutes here. Speaking of trades, did you feel the Pascal Siakam trade was a good one for Indiana, giving up the three first-rounders plus to acquire his services? Uh, that, that was more than I expected, um, especially with Toronto. When they traded OG Ananobi, they didn't even get a first-round pick back, and they kind of signaled that they were interested in players other than picks, and they, they're not interested in completely tearing this down. So the fact that they went for a pick-heavy package from Indiana I think was interesting. Um, and then Masai Ujiri came out today and said that he, they definitely are planning on making more trades. So I keep an eye on Toronto and see what they do to see if maybe they flip those picks and try to bring in a different star that maybe fits that core better. Um, Indiana, it, it's I, I thought it was kind of funny because you look at, you know, you think of like the Lakers, the Knicks as these teams that, they're always linked to the superstars. They're the ones that, you know, all these, these superstars are pushing for trades for. Who's made some of the best, biggest trades in the NBA over the last year? It's been these Midwest teams. It's been the Milwaukee Bucks with Damian Lillard. It's been the Cavs with Donovan Mitchell. It's been the Indiana Pacers with Pascal Siakam. Uh, even the Minnesota Timberwolves with Rudy Gobert. Yeah. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of been cool to see. Um, you know, we'll see if ultimately those trades work out or not. But the fact that these Midwest kind of small market teams are the teams that are getting these all-stars and these superstars, uh, I think it's neat. I think it's good for the league, so I was happy to see it. Sham Sharanya dropped the line the other day about how Golden State is basically open for business aside from Steph Curry. They'll trade anybody but him. What do you think the Warriors are going to look like after the deadline? Is this kind of the end of their dynasty with that big trio of players that we've all come to know? Yeah, the, the Warriors are in rough shape, and I, I don't think anybody in Cleveland's going to shed a tear for them. Um, they're no. in 12th place. <laughs> the only teams they're beating 
in the West right now are the Spurs, the Trailblazers, and the Grizzlies. Like, that's it. Those are the only teams in the West that they're ahead of in the standings. Um, even if you look at Steph Curry's on-off numbers, he's not been the player he's been before, and it's understandable. He's 35. Um, you know, you and I are probably about that age, and we're, we're not the people we used to be either, so no disrespect <laughs> to Steph. My knees, um, my knees remind me of that all the time, Greg. Don't believe me. <laughs> so our, our better days are behind us, too. That's okay. Uh, I I don't see the Warriors trading Draymond Green. I don't see them trading Klay Thompson. I, you've got a new GM there in Mike Dunleavy Jr. Is that really what he wants his legacy to start out as, as the Warriors GM trading two franchise icons? Um, now, if they trade Andrew Wiggins, I won't be surprised. But all these reports come out saying, like, well, they really like Jonathan Kaminga. They really like Moses Moody. And they really like Brandon Pazinski. And, and, well, all their good young players, they don't want to trade them either. So at some point, what are you going to give up to yeah. get something? Uh, Siakam was a name that you thought was linked to them for a while. That would be a major upgrade. Um, but now we're, we're, he's off the table. OG Ananobi's off the table. Um, Zach Levine is a name that I don't think makes any sense there. Obviously, a guy that's on the trade deadline, on the, on the trade market now. Um, I, I don't see the move out there that's going to jumpstart this franchise and bring him back to a title. I just don't. I think the Warriors are... And I said this before the season started. Uh, my bold predictions for Bleacher Report, I said the Golden State Warriors are going to miss the playoffs this year, and I, I'm going to stand by that. I, I, I think they missed the postseason altogether. Congratulations on all your success. You uh, you nailed that one right from the jump. That's awesome. We'll um, see. We'll see. The season's not <laughs> over yet. We'll see. That's true. Uh, I'll get you out of here with this real quick. Playoff picture, Eastern Conference, Cavs are sort of right back in that same spot as last year, four with the Knicks in that that, that beloved fifth spot. Chance for those two teams to obviously duke it out here down the long stretch of the season that remains and maybe be the matchup again going to the playoffs in that first round. But there's the teams behind them too, the Heat, the Pacers. I'm going to be honest, Greg, like all three of those teams kind of scare me as first-round matchups because the Pacers' offense is ridiculous, the Heat or the Heat. And then the Knicks last year, the way they bullied the Cavs kind of worries me. Which of those teams do you think is maybe the most worrisome for the Cavs if they're trying to avoid one? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I mean, originally you would have said, like, well, bring on Indiana. And then they just added a two-time All-Star, yeah. two-time All-NBA, All-Star starter in the front court. So I don't, I don't want to see them. But if you're looking Knicks, Heat, Pacers, I don't want to see the Knicks. I think that would bring back a lot of bad memories. I think the Knicks got a lot better uh, when they traded R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly for OG Ananobi. They have a team that all of a sudden is really tough. Jalen Brunson is a tough player. Ananobi's a tough player. Josh Hart is a tough player. Uh, I mean, if and we and we got them with Julius Randle coming off an ankle injury, and he was not the same Julius Randle in that series. Um, and by that time, they could get Mitchell Robinson back too. And the Cavs had all sorts of problems with Mitchell Robinson, um, as, as he pointed out uh, in his post game press conference, the one game. So the Knicks are the team. I would hate to see them. I think it bring back a lot of bad memories, and especially if you're looking at. Uh, Donovan Mitchell being one year away from free agency, potentially losing to the Knicks two years in a row in the first round. Uh, give me anybody but the Knicks in the front in the first round. That's who I would pick. I tend to agree. He's Greg Swartz, Bleacher Report. You can follow him on X at Greg Swartz BR. Always appreciate your time, my man. You always have some great insight, especially into what lies ahead for the Cavs as they get Mobley and Garland back here in the in the coming months. Appreciate you so much. We'll definitely do it again soon. Nine o'clock. Can Deshaun Watson and Joe Flacco coexist on the same team here in Cleveland next year as 
both healthy, functioning quarterbacks on this team. I'm going to tell you why I don't think so. Brian Billick also had some comments on it. He joined Afternoon Drive. We'll play that. 10 o'clock, I will finally reveal to you that we will be speaking with Kevin Spencer, former special teams coordinator for the Cleveland Browns under Bill Belichick from 1991 to 1994. Excited to pick his brain really on a multitude of things because I'm curious being somebody who was in that building at one point, I know it was years ago, but just being in the NFL and around how these decisions are made, like what goes into coaching change decisions? How do those conversations go? What is that like? But then also, we obviously got to pick his brain on Bill Belichick and and everything that went down with him this week and where he ends up and some of those different things as well. So uh, I'm excited to talk to him about that. That'll be at 10 o'clock. We'll go off the beaten path probably around 940. Still a lot of good stuff. A lot of bases to still cover throughout the rest of the evening here uh, on 92 through the fan. I also, later on in the show, guys, I got to settle a debate that JP and, and, and Dustin had. We'll, we'll get to that for you as well. 216-474-92. You heard Greg Swartz there, Bleacher Report, talking about just the numbers with the original starting five for Cleveland and the numbers for this new starting five. And, I mean, that stuff, what he routed off there, staggering. Absolutely staggering. I wrote some of it down. So, the starting five of Mitchell, Okoro, Allen, Struess, and Wade have played 294 minutes together, which is just 10 short of what the original starting five played together this year. And their regular starting five, their offense was in the 35th percentile. This new starting five is in the 85th percentile. I mean, that is... Night and day difference in terms of your offensive output that you're you're getting from these two groups. Like, you don't see that all the time. That massive of a jump to being that good of an offensive team. And what do we know about this league right now? When you got shooters, when you got floor spacing, it generally pays to benefit you. And we're seeing that with this current lineup. Even though they have some three-point shooters that are inconsistent, Struess is only hitting like what 35% this year. Fine. It's 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 what you kind of expect from him. And I kind of tried to warn you about that when they signed him. He's not some lights out three-point shooter. He's going to be streaky, but he's knocking some down. You got others contributing to knock some down. You had the 33-point game from uh, Niang last night. He was five of six from three. You got Sam uh Sam Merrill shooting threes like no other, and he's knocking down 50% of them. I mean, it, it's just this is the style that when at the beginning of the season, when they talked about playing differently and pace of play and speeding things up and all these different things, this is what we thought we were getting only with Evan Mobley out there on the floor as well. And that hasn't come to fruition, but now here you are. And I just, I like, I wonder by the way, they're also scoring 16 more points per possession than the regular starting five, of this group. I mean, that is eye-popping, and that is... Those figures and numbers should make you change your philosophy once you get back healthy, and you do have Darius Scarlett and Evan Mobley out there. Now, Greg mentions 
Getting Garland back, less of a concern. He can kind of fit right in as another floor-spacing guard that can shoot, fine. But Mobley's the big one, and I'm fascinated to see what this team does because we've had ad nauseum conversations about how he's just not the floor spacer that these other guys are. He's not a three-point shooter. I've said I don't know that he needs to be that player. I think he can be kind of a downhill, get-to-the-basket type of scorer and still have the offense run through him at times and be an effective player. But him and Jared Allen kind of slow down the offense when they're out there on the floor together. If they're not, if one of them can't pop out and knock down threes, it just doesn't help you. They kind of all crash in to the paint and try to defend those guys because they know they're not going to shoot threes, and that makes life easier on your wing players who are trying to defend them. So how do you do this thing differently? We talk about J.B. Bickerstaff and this year being a barometer for whether or not he should be back, how he manages this thing, how far they go in the playoffs. He's got some expectations on him as much as the team has expectations on it. What he does with this rotation when these guys get back is going to be fascinating to see because it could make or break how we feel about him and whether or not he truly is the man for the job moving forward. He's got different pieces he's got to try to fit now into a lineup that he's seen the effectiveness, even from having maybe lesser players in terms of skill, but just having the floor spacing has paid off dividends, in my opinion, and from what we've watched and seen for this Cavs offense than what we saw early in the season when they're losing to the dismal Portland Trailblazers. How do you now replicate that when you get a player added back in and Evan Mobley who just isn't that style of player and isn't going to help you spread the floor and shoot threes? What's that look like? I don't know. But we're going to find out in the next month or so when he returns. He's not on crutches anymore. He, I know you saw him on the sidelines of the game last night sitting ba- sitting in the, on the team bench. So we know um, Darius is progressing. He finally got his mouth unwired, which, by the way, sounded like an absolutely miserable experience. We talked about that last night with Bohm. Michael Bohm had his mouth wired shut for like a week at one point because of a surgery he had, and he said it was it was awful. And he was, actually, Bohm was texting me today. And I guess Chris Fedor was talking about how like they were in Paris and they were going to like these five-star restaurants and they were just, he'd bring a blender with him everywhere he went. He was grinding up five-star meals and, and drinking them with a straw. That sounds miserable. I'm less worried about Garland being brought back in, more worried about Mobley, but I really am fascinated to see JB deserves some credit for keeping the train on the tracks. As Greg said, Kobe Altman does as well. What's he going to do when he gets back to full strength, though, and what's this team going to look like? Because he's found something now, and he's got to find the right way to manage these players to get the most out of them because what they were doing early in the season just wasn't working. And you're seeing a much more effective and efficient offense now with this this sort of revamped starting lineup that they've thrown together because of injury. 216-474-2092 if you want to get in. On the Cavs, when we get back as well, can Joe Flacco and Deshaun Watson coexist in the same quarterback room next year? I got some thoughts on it. So does Brian Billick, who was on Afternoon Drive. Two hours down, three to go. It's Spencer German with you. Overtime with Jonathan Peterlin here on The Fan.